Good morning. Again. Let's come back together, dive into Psalm 33 together. I have found this psalm to just be really encouraging as we worship and praise our Lord. And I hope it is for you too this morning. <clears throat> Ever had something you could really get excited about? I mean, just really excited. We're talking yell and scream excited, right? So, the what? Is it good? Okay, so we yell and scream. So, I know I've been going to Star Wars a lot. It's me. You just get to know me a little bit. That's okay. So, Kenobi, the, the finale came out in the last two weeks. And um, I'm going to spoil it for all of you. No. There is one moment that perhaps my wife and I had watched it ahead of time and not told the kids we did. And then we were watching it together for the first time with the kids. And um, <laughs> did I, I don't think I told this story. Did I tell this story? And... There was one moment that I knew what would happen. And it gets to this moment. I'm not going to spoil it. And, and it's just this wow moment. Those of you who have seen it, I bet know what I'm talking about. And I knew because all of a sudden there is screaming in my house. Yeah! As um, something really cool happened for those that haven't seen it. And, and, you know, one of my family members may have been jumping up on the couch and, and just all these things. Now, in equal time... We also watched um, the Downton Abbey movie this week. And my wife is like, at the beginning, they, they, there's a scene that they pan through the entire cast, right? And my wife was like, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's that, there's that. And I'm like, I have no idea who these people are. But if you put, but if you put lightsabers in their hands, this could be a cool movie. Um, <laughs> And there's an excitement there, right? There are things that we get excited about that elicit a response. That, that whether it's a, a shout of joy or whether it's a, a, you know, some reaction. And, and both of those had reactions in my home from, from different people. Um, but then life has a way, if we think of those times in our lives, life also has a way of knocking some of that joy out, right? There are times we have all this joy and all this excitement but things happen and we're like, what just happened? I was so, I was doing so well. Life was so good. And then maybe it's a lost job or sickness or whether it's just a bad day or, or a, a conflict or something. Life has a way of knocking these things out. For some of you, maybe your 401ks the last two months has been a source of frustration. Um, don't be frustrated. We'll talk about this morning because that is not where your hope lies. And as we come to the text today, the te- the Psalm 33 really answers the question, how do we keep our joy and excitement, the yeah moments with God and who He is and what He's done, how do we keep those in a fallen world? And it comes back to where's our trust? Who do we trust? And in what way do we express that? So turn with me to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. A psalm that I think will just, like I said, greatly encourage us today to trust in the right thing, to trust in who God is, to trust in the things that make a difference. Psalm 33. If you don't have a Bible with you, we invite you to grab one of the black hardcover ones under a seat right around you. And if you don't have one at home, take that home with you. We want you to have God's word. But Psalm 33, and we'll get through all 22 verses and really, your, your points today, and I'll give them to you ahead of time because it, the psalm just breaks down really nicely. We'll look at a call to praise. 
We'll look at the cause for praise and we'll look at the consequence for praise. And so we even did C words today and some alliteration and so just some fun with that. A call to praise, the cause of praise, and a consequence of praise. So Psalm 33, and I actually want to go back one verse to the last verse of Psalm 32 and read that and then we'll look at the call to praise. 32 verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so Psalm 32 ended with this call to praise and rejoicing in God and shouting with joy. Now read verse 1 of 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And so Psalm 33 really takes this idea of what it means to praise God and actually what it means to trust God that that we see and expands it, okay, what does it look like to praise God? Why do we praise God? What is the, the cause of that? What should we focus on? And then what is the result of that? And so we come to 33 answering that question. And it starts with a, a call to praise. God's people are called to praise Him joyfully. We could even say God's people are commanded to praise Him joyfully as we look at all the verses and, and the tone of these verses. But God's people are expected to praise Him. Because if we're God's people, we've experienced who He is. We've experienced what He's done. And so this is a call to worship, a call to praise Him joyfully. It starts by shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. And we see that the psalmist is talking to God's people here, the righteous, the upright, those that are walking with God, those that are spiritually growing with God. And he's saying those that are right before God, those that are walking with God, those that are spiritually mature with God will love to worship. They will love to praise because that's part of a walk with God. And so he says, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits or is fitting or is expected from the upright. I love just right from the beginning, shout for joy. And we, we've sung songs that say shout for joy. And, and I know that we are not necessarily the most expressive church. I know that, that to raise hands, you know, it can, can be hard. But this wording literally means to cry out, to yell what God is doing. Now, I'm not advocating that we're just all going to have a yell session. That's, that's not where we're going with this. The idea is that when we focus on God, when we are so in tune with God, where God is at, we can't help but be enthusiastic with our praise. And so it's not just, uh, uh, shout for joy to God, all the earth. That one always bugged me when we would sing that song and there was like frowns everywhere. I'm like, no, we're to shout for joy to God. He is holy. He is just. He has saved us. And that is the tone of the psalmist here. Shout for joy. Exult. Cry out. Sing aloud enthusiastically. I tried to just look up a bunch of Bible dictionaries and they all sort of said the same thing from a different angle. And, and as I was thinking about that, how do we do this and where the psalm goes is, I kept thinking in my mind, is the person and work of God worth this? Of course, right? That's a rhetorical question. Of course it's worth it. But that helps me focus not just on, oh, I have to elicit this behavior in me, 
but coming back to the person and the work of Christ, which is where this psalm is going to go. And so that's, that's why the introduction is something you're really excited about. If we're really excited about who God is and what He's done, we can't help but worship. We can't help but be enthusiastic with our worship. If we get to the end of baseball season this year and it comes down to Game 7 and the Angels or the Dodgers pull it out and win the World Series, I would bet... See, I, I, got, I got all of you. <laughs> no, not all. There's, there's a couple of outliers. The A's aren't going to make it. We're just going to... No. <laughs> So, sorry, Happy. <laughs> if that happened, there would be cries out loud that I could probably hear from my house from some of your homes. Right? And there would be an excitement. That's what the psalmist is saying, is get that excited about God, about what He's done, what He's doing in your life. Salvation is not to be taken lightly, but is something to praise God for. His work and His worth are good. It's worth it. And so the psalmist here, this is a reaction to the greatness and glory of God. The more you know Him, the more you praise. And that's just the way that I've seen it work over 51 years of being a believer now. The more you know Him, the more you draw close to Him, the more you can't help but praise. And so, shout for joy, O Lord. In the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. One other just side note of of this verse, and you'll see it at the end of the psalm as well. All of these verbs here are in the plural. So it's, you all shout for joy in the Lord. You all rejoice. You all praise. And so wherever we see worship talked about in Scripture, it's talked about in a family sense, in a corporate sense. And, And so we come and we do this together, encouraging one another and challenging one another and lifting each other up. Then in verse 2 and 3, he gets to the how. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. And these are a couple of instruments that they would use. And he's saying, bring instruments in. Some people are gifted at playing and maybe not so gifted at singing. You never know. But um, use your gifts. Use what God has given you. So bring in the music. Bring in the instruments. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. And then we get verse 3. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And you get three more instructions of of how or in what way, what methods we should worship. This is a call to freshness in worship, in skill, and in joy. And so the first phrase there is a freshness in worship. Sing to Him a new song. And a new song, that that phrasing is used in Scripture at least nine times with instructions about worship. Sing a new song. Sing a new song. Sing a new song. And this doesn't mean that we sinned this morning because none of our songs were new. What it's talking about is as God does a new work, there should always be a freshness to worship, a freshness of bringing in new ways of expressing that to God. We have seen that throughout history. And sometimes those new ways of expressing that to God are, are rediscovering an old song and rediscovering it, but it's, it's not getting stale in our worship. There's a freshness to it. But almost always, new songs and a movement of new songs has accompanied a new work of God or something that God is doing. In the 16th century, we had the Reformation. 
And during the Reformation, Martin Luther wrote songs and some other artists wrote new songs as God worked through the Reformation. And so out of that era, we get a mighty fortress is our God. Uh, one that I thought was humorous. Uh, and it, he, I don't know about humorous, but he also wrote Away in the Manger. And I, that surprised me. I'm like, okay, those are songs that came as God was doing a work in the church through the Reformation. In the 18th century, the, the first great awakening, we had um, songwriters like Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley. And again, they wrote new songs at the time. And so we have songs like Joy to the World, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and Can It Be? And those songs that sometimes we look at as old songs came about as God was doing a new work at that time. And they were new songs at the time because as God does something new, those with an artistic flair have this innate need to express it in a new way. And that is God-given. In the 19th century, the blind hymn writer Fanny Crosby wrote new songs for her generation. Blessed assurance, to God be the glory. And so sometimes we think of all the old songs as just one group. Those were written at different times as God moved in his church in different ways. I, I love the song we sang this morning, All Creatures of Our God and King. This song actually spans centuries and it's been rediscovered several times. It was actually written by St. Francis of Assisi in the 12th century for the church there as, as God was working through the church there. Then in the 19th century, right after the Great Awakening, as, as the church was discovering some of theology and expanding, then it was rediscovered and translated, because it wasn't in English before, translated by Draper. And then even just recently, David Crowder rediscovered it again and put it to, to music and reminded us of a desire to worship God that all of creation is His. And all of creation is designed to worship Him. I love that story because you see three different eras coming together on the same song. And worship spanning the centuries. God is giving us new songs in the 21st century. Um, often the 21st century is called a worship revival, coming back to the heart of worship, really rediscovering a new expression of how to sing to God. And so you have like Stuart Townend and, and Keith Getty writing in Christ Alone, and that has just taken, taken worship world now for 20 years by storm. You have th- people like Chris Tomlin, How Great Is Our God, and other songs that really expressed a desire to see God's greatness in the, the early 2000s. You have 10,000 Reasons by Matt Redman, right? You guys like that song? Well, my kids now have a new version of it by KB, and it's called 10K, and it's a little livelier. But you know what? It's worship. And it's a worship song that's speaking to their generation. And so I listened to, to it with them. It's actually pretty cool. As each generation rediscovers what it means to worship God, what it means to sing a new song. Now, I, I've talked with some people in the last three or four years, I'm watching another trend in worship. As we've gone through the pandemic, as churches have struggled and, and with, with challenges, with um, all kinds of things, we see all kinds of songs being written now about God's power and his strength and his victory. It's not an accident. That is a new song, an expression God is giving to His church. And so the, the whole new, th- new song theology 
pervades Scripture. It's not just in this verse. As we're commanded to sing to Him a new song. I, when I used to lead missions trips here when I was maybe a little younger, um, it was really interesting because God worked through those in some amazing ways. And I would just put on worship music. I had a bunch of collections of worship music. And on every trip, one or two songs, and it was different every trip, one or two songs became sort of the theme songs of that trip. And it depended on how God was working. Whether I liked them or not didn't matter. As long as they were theologically sound, God was working through them, and so we played them a lot. (laughs) And it was good. And so when we come to understanding worship is about who God is and what He's done, then we can get past a lot of these extraneous things that cause us to like one song and not like another song and, and come together and worship together. Sing to Him a new song. You know, one of the things that has helped me, sometimes there's songs that some of you like that I don't. And there's sometimes songs I like that some of you don't. So just being honest about music here for me. That's the nature of music, right? That's the nature of art. One of the things that's helped me is when someone like is raving about a song that I'm like, oh, chalkboard nails. Um, I just ask the question, why do you like that song? How does it speak to you? And when I begin to hear their story, I begin to weep that I didn't like that song. Because God is using it in a brother or sister's life. And how dare I, how dare I berate that? And again, I'm talking doctrinally sound music and all the things we've talked about elsewhere in worship. But this, the psalmist says, Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the righteous. In verse 3, sing to Him a new song. And the next instruction is play skillfully on the strings. Do it well. I don't know what else to say except play skillfully. (laughs) Do it well. God doesn't want shoddy worship that we have given half-heartedness to. And I know sometimes we get in a rush and sometimes uh, on different events we're putting things together. Our goal is to do it well. Not, Not for the show. Not for some concert. We're not putting out a CD or anything. Those are old things that were around. We're not putting out an album or anything like that. We do it well because we are singing praises of the God who created the universe and who saved us when we didn't deserve it. Amen? And so He deserves our praise to the best of our ability. We don't have to be professionals, but let's play as skillfully as we can. Let's do this well. And the third instruction there goes back to the first phrase. Shout for joy ends with with loud shouts. And those are an envelope to this section of a call to praise. With loud shouts, cry out in praise. Put your whole heart into it. And so from the start of this, the psalmist says, God's people are called to praise Him joyfully. It's a call to praise. But then we get to the middle section. The largest section of the psalm is a cause for praise. Who God is and what He's done. See, again, the psalmist here isn't calling us to emotionalism. He's not calling us to somehow work up the emotions to praise God. Yeah, He's great. And then we don't know why and not engage our heads. But now the rest of the psalm goes to our heads and the truth and says, this is why you praise God. And he makes a compelling case for why we should praise God. The first in 4 and 5 
is praise God for who he is. Praise God for who he is. And you're going to hear me all, all over the place today say we're praising him for who he is and what he's done. And that's the, the two things we see coming up in this psalm. Praise God for who he is. The purest worship is with only God in mind, who he is and what he's done. Verse 4, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And so the, the first word there, for, that's why I call this the cause for praise. He said you're to praise God wholeheartedly with, with skill and, and with energy. And he says this is why. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. Now these verses already start to get the work of God in, but we're going to get there in, in verse 6. So I want to focus more on the character of God here. Do you see all the phrases about the character of God there? What are some of the ways God is described? You can talk. Upright, okay? And, and upright there means straight, honest, on the right path. So God is upright. Trustworthy would fit upright, yeah. Um, where he, he goes, he's honest. That's the honest part of it. Does what he says. Someone said um, faithful, right? All his work is done in faithfulness. Think about that. God is always faithful to his word. He's always faithful to his people. He has never let us down. Praise God. We can't say that about any other being in existence. But God is faithful. All his work is done in faithfulness. What else do you see? Loving. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And steadfast love comes from the Hebrew word hesed. And there should be a guttural there, but I can't do the... Um, it's, it's, it's hesed, which means a covenant love that is unmerited and without any cause or any condition. It's, it's a Hebrew equivalent of agape, but combined with covenant and, and an oath. And so when we read words like the steadfast love of the Lord, that means he has promised to love us no matter what, and he will never stop. Isn't that cool? You cannot make God stop loving you. Our sin can separate us from him, but he still is pursuing us and loving us. Other words you see there, you see um, God's righteousness. There is no blemish and no sin, not even a spot in our God. You see his justice. He loves justice. Our God is just. He always gets it right. There are no appeals. He always gets it right. These are words that describe our God. All of these flow out of who He is. Our our, our worship flows out of who He is. And so so what I want to do is just take a moment and just close your eyes for a minute right where you're at and just start to think through who God is. Don't say anything. Complete quiet. Who is God? How have you seen him, his character?
Thank you, Lord, for who you are. And so the first cause for praise is praise for who he is. And hopefully in our worship, we have a lot of songs that talk about the character of God, the characteristics of God. I think this is just my, my personal opinion. I think one of the reasons why his character elicits such an act of praise is we know that we're not there. And we know that we've never met anyone that's there. He is so completely other, so completely above us that we can't help but praise. Then we get to six through nine. Praise God for his power and creation. So we praise him for who he is and then praise God for his power and creation, what he has done. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The word, by the way, that in verse four is declared upright. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And so this is an appeal to the power of God, the omnipotence of God, and the creative work of God. Like Genesis, it mirrors Genesis 1 and 2. Because we see that By the very word of God, the heavens were made. His simple speech created everything out of nothing. And in verse 6 and also in verse 9, the implication there is it all came to be out of nothing. He just spoke and out of nothing, ex nihilo we call that, it came to be. Now we could sit here for the next 20 minutes and I could say, I want you to speak to the chair next to you and create a cat. Not one of you could do it. I hope. No. Not one of you could because we can't create something out of nothing. That is profoundly awesome. We, everything we create is out of other elements. But God created everything out of nothing. In verse 7, he orchestrates where the oceans go. It's a testimony to his power. He puts the deep into storehouses. And I think of Genesis where it says he separated the waters and land came out. There may be an allusion as well to the Red Sea and Joshua crossing the Jordan and salvation through those. But I I think the context really leans more towards creation. And eight, we see what this should, what, what response this should give. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Be in awe, but also some fear. The creator of the universe is not to be trifled with. And so this awe and fear work together. When we really understand that he is creator, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And so the psalmist says, you want something worthy of praise? How about creating everything out of nothing? How about with his words causing all this to be? And in verse 9, He commanded and it stood firm, a reference to that he still maintains creation. This is amazing. And so we come back to, again, God's creative act. And the wording here, again, leads to a a creation out of nothing, a six-day creation. It's really hard to get around that with some of the wording. That God caused this to be. And just like we saw with Paul at Mars Hill, when he started with creation, so much of our worship starts with creation. God's lordship, which is where we'll get to in the trust, comes back to creation. If he's not creator, he's not Lord. If he's not creator, why should we trust him? 
And so praise God for His power in His creation. Then we get to 10 through 15. The last thing, praise God for His plans and sovereignty over all. Praise God for His plan and sovereignty over all. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. And so we have 10 through 12 there where it's talking about the best plans of nations are nothing to God. You could take the most powerful ruler on earth and their plans for the world and their plans for global domination or whatever we're seeing in the news today and that's nothing to God. It doesn't affect Him because God is the only one whose plan is sovereign. He is the only omnipotent, all-powerful one. And in fact, you can't be sovereign if you're not all-powerful. And, and so this is a call to remember that God's in charge. God's in control. No nation can ruin that. No people can ruin that. No one can mess up God's plan. An administration or an election can't mess up God's plan. A war can't mess up God's plan. A crash in the stock market can't mess up God's plan. And in fact, when we worry, we are rejecting or forgetting the sovereignty of God. There is a direct line between worry and and an understanding of the sovereignty of God. Or rather, not worrying. And so these are wonderful verses to remind us of who God is. In verse 11, praise Him that His wisdom and ways stand forever. They last. They won't change. A Jewish publication translates verse 11, what the Lord plans endures forever, what He designs for ages on end. Time isn't going to decay it. Time isn't going to change it. This is so completely different from our plans. Anyone in the last month had some of your plans change? Never has happened with God. That should make us praise and shout for joy to the Lord. And then 12, just a reminder to Israel that they are a people chosen by God. They are His people. And for us, it's a reminder that we have been chosen by God and we are His people if we have put our trust in Jesus Christ. And then 13 through 15, the Lord looks down from heaven. Again, talking about His sovereignty. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. And so one of the things in these verses to notice is how many times does it it use the word all and how many times does it use some sort of word for seeing? And that's when we start to see His his sovereignty. That's where we start to see His his enthronement above all things, that God is on the throne because He looks down from heaven, uh, uh, that He's gazing on us. He sees intently. He's discerning. He sees all the children of man. Not one of us can escape his gaze. Now that could be comforting. Maybe time's not so comforting. But not one of us can escape his gaze. From where he sits enthroned, referring to his lordship, which comes right after that he's the creator. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. So you get this idea of seeing and discerning and understanding And then combined with all, he is sovereign over all. 
He is God. He is Lord. And so if we're to say, why should I pray? What, what elicits this call to praise? What brings the enthusiasm? Who God is, what He's done, what He's created, and that He's maintaining it all. He's sovereign over all things. And we don't have to worry about it. Praise God. Are any of these things worth praising Him for? Amen. It's okay to say amen. amen. Thank you. God is great and He is good. So then verse 16 to 22, the consequence of praise. And especially the last three verses, but I'm putting these together. All of these things, our worship, our praise, our focus on these things, remind us to put our trust and hope in the true source of help and care. It reminds us to put our trust and hope in the true source of help and care, our Creator Lord. This is what should happen because of our worship. If we're worshiping well, God is forming inside of us Christ's likeness and He's forming us an ability to trust Him more. In verse 16, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. And so the first idea of the consequence of praise is don't trust in man or institutions for rescue. Don't trust in man or institutions for rescue. I, I, I want to repeat that a few times. And in the efforts of man here, it's talking about the king is not saved by his great army. He can't have enough power to save himself in this fallen world. It's relying on self, relying on his own ability, relying on his own power. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. Again, self-reliance. The war horse, and this is where the title comes from, No Horses. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. Someone else's strength, some situation is going to change that is going to change the whole culture. Something else is going to change that's going to change my whole life. If, 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 if. And if all those things are not trusting in God and we're looking for other externals to bring us joy, contentment, or happiness, it will fall apart. By its great might, it cannot rescue And so this is a call to not trust in man's power or efforts. Now, I'm not saying don't be involved. We've talked about politics before, and we should be involved in good citizens and and strive to to be salt and light. But that's not the source of our our strength. You know, in, in the last two weeks, we've seen some amazing Supreme Court decisions. And I praise God for those. But those alone are not going to save our culture. That's not where my hope is. That's not where my salvation is. Anyone watch the news since then? And the division and the unrest? Now again, I praise God for those decisions. And I, 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 I would lobby for those decisions. And we should fight for the lives of the unborn. But ultimately, our prayer is that God would change hearts and minds. Not that the Supreme Court would change the law. Again, understand my balance. I want them to. I pray for that to happen, but that's not where my hope is. Make sense? My hope can only be found in the Lord. Don't trust in man's power or efforts. There's all kinds of places we could go with this. I I do think of the banking industry right now and the stock market, and, and it is so easy to lose hope on some of those things because... Our future hope was based on, some of us, what is happening in our retirement account. 
do you realize God can still take care of you even if the stock market crashes? It's, it's not outside the realm of the creator God's ability. And when we start to think of it in terms of what do I worry about? What do I hope in other than God? Oh, you know, we could go away from some of the externals like that and just talk about some of our own self-identity and, and our self-worth. And sometimes we put a hope in that of performance in certain ways at school or at work. Sometimes we put all of that weight onto relationships in our lives and those relationships have to make us healthy and happy and whole and then they don't because man or women can't stand up to that kind of need. Only our God can. And all this is under a consequence of praise or a result of praise. I wanted a C word, so we went with consequence. The result of praise is we remind ourselves who God is and what He's done And that reminds us to put our trust in Him. Amen? The only source. And so this week, this week I challenge you to say, am I trusting in a horse? Am I trusting in some external thing for my future, for my happiness, for my well-being? Or am I trusting a sovereign God whose plans can never be messed up? And that's how worship forms us. As we sing truth, as we read truth and study truth, our hearts begin to internalize it. And finally, the last few verses, 18 through 22. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in the famine. And so it's don't trust in horses, But trust in the one who sees everything. Trust in the one who has steadfast love that will never change for you, that will always act in a loving way toward you. Only our sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent Lord saves. Only. And 20 through 22, then letter C, trust and hope in the Lord alone and our heart will be helped. And these three verses form a conclusion to the psalm, almost a response to the response, a prayer at the end. And again, notice all the plural pronouns as we worship together. Our soul, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. I love the confidence of that. It's not he might be our help and shield. Or I hope he's my help and shield. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in His holy name. And that verse stuck out to me all week. Are there times where I'm struggling with gladness? Are there times where I'm looking at circumstances more than a God who loves me covenantally, without fail? When I trust in Him, not a horse, my heart is glad. It's a promise. 22, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. What a great prayer to end. It's basically saying, I've sung God's praises, I've seen who He is and what He's done, and now I'm going to hope in Him. And I am helped. And I am helped. And my heart is glad. Before we come to communion, I want to stand and sing a worship song together that really encapsulates a lot of these, and then we'll move into communion from that. But worship team, if you'd come up.
And let's just stand and sing for joy, shout for joy at who God is and what He's done. And that's what the song talks about. And then we will celebrate communion, what God has done in bringing us salvation. Thank you, Lord. Even this weekend as we celebrate freedom as a country, Lord, we've just celebrated the ultimate freedom from sin. That you have conquered sin, that you have paid the penalty of sin, and you live in us so we can live in you. Thank you, Lord, in your name.